General Wincandy. Hmm. What? Who is it? Lieutenant Wilson, sir, 2nd Battalion, the Loamshire, sir. What do you want, eh? Well, sir, I'm afraid, sir, we've... Uh... Well, say it, man, say it. I've no time to waste. Oh, yes, you have, sir. I beg your pardon, sir? You've got all night, sir. Attended! I'm afraid he can't come. Why? He's a prisoner, sir. What's going on here? Invasions. But you damned young idiot, war starts at midnight, haven't you been told? Oh, yes, sir. That's why we're here. But may I ask on what authority? On the authority of these guns and these men, sir. Authority? Authority? How dare you, sir? How dare you? Get out of here, sir, you and your gang of awful militia gangsters. Get out! I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. Welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. This week, I chose the movie. And it's one of those weeks where I'm almost nervous that what I have to say is not equal to the film itself. This is The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. I did not know that I would love this movie as much as I did. I find it almost emotionally unbearable to watch, but not unbearable in the same way as like uh, Dear Zachary or something else. You know, we've, we've done yeah. movies on the podcast that are deeply affecting in a negative way. This movie is about a lot of things. One of them is the passage of time. But in its relentlessness, it is one of the most beautiful films I think ever made. Of course, we got on a Powell and Pressburger kick with yep. The Red Shoes uh, and Black Narcissus. So I absolutely had to see it. And I have to say that's maybe the most enjoyable three hours that I've, I've spent in the past couple of weeks that I, that I can think of. I'm exactly with you because uh, we've talked about a lot of movies on this show and we're doing, but this one is kind of like, you know, can I do this justice? There's, you know, there are certain movies that you and I love that we have not done yet on the show. Cause it's almost like we can't wrap our heads around how to talk about them in 15 minutes. We're not going to make 15 minutes for this one viewers. So we love you, but you're going to be in here probably for a little longer than 15 minutes, although we will strap try. in. Strap in. But if you haven't, and if you have not seen this film, if you have not seen The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, the 1943 film, you have to you have to pause this now and then go watch it and come back. We don't we hate to turn away listeners. We hate to turn away downloads, but that's the beauty of the internet. It'll still be there. Watch this movie and then come back. So the great thing about this film, if you've seen it a long time ago and maybe forgot, is that it's it's a movie where they infuse a literal cartoon character. You know, Colonel Blimp was a cartoon character created by David Lowe in 1934 with this complex inner life. And of course, we, we both saw this for the first time, right? So we're thinking like, wait a minute, his name is Candy? I thought his name's like, you know, Colonel Blimp. It's, it's Clive Candy, of course. And he is a type. He reminded me very much in the middle of the film. How much did he remind you of the character Graham Chapman plays in all the Money Python skits where he plays the, the major? I mean, the same, exactly the same mannerisms in the same voice. But it's unbelievable that they infuse this guy with an inner life. And there's a great, great little featurette on the Criterion channel where they interview Patton Oswalt 
uh, you know, of all people talking about this film. He loves it too. And he says, it's unbelievable that they took this cartoon character and did all this backstory and filled him in. And he said, the equivalent would be, and I wish I had thought of this, but he said, the equivalent would be if you took the family circus and then you made the ice storm out of it. No, 100%. I was thinking like um, the E! True Hollywood story of Donald Duck. <laughs> or Beetle Bailey or something. Like Beetle Bailey becomes Private Pile in Full Metal Jacket. So I think that this movie is so, it's so hard to wrap your head. But of course, like it's not, it's not like Dear Zachary. That's a great point you made, Mike. Like it's not like watching Raging Bull or Dear Zachary or, or a film that like knocks the wind out of your sails. It knocks the wind out of your sails with almost with happiness that when it's over, I was so happy and running around telling people you've got to see this movie. But it wasn't like I had to make sure who I was recommending it to, you know, you had to be cautious. It, it fills you with joy. Xenophon once uh, asked Socrates uh, why people give to uh, the sick in the street in, in ancient Athens, but they never gave to poets. And apparently the reply was uh, because men expect that they may one day become sick, but they do not expect to become poets. And I, <laughs> I think that that the, the beauty of something like Dear Zachary or something, Something that I would is just a is just a soul crusher. Yeah, is that we don't all experience tragedy in our lives. Sometimes some of us will have bad things that we would prefer not happen to us, but it's not tragedy. Right. The thing that is happening to Clive Win Candy, we are all in the midst of it. It's like it's like watching like time lapse film of something slowly degrading or crushed over time but you're experiencing it in real life. That's why you have the three hours to watch the movie. And I, I think the force of compression in this movie is so great that it makes me want to laugh and cry. And it, it, it literally, it just breaks your heart. There's something um, distinct from happiness that like someone like CS Lewis or somebody would have called joy. And that, that this movie is relentlessly joyful and it yes. hurts so bad. It does. It's you get you almost get like this aesthetic rapture from watching it because you know one of the great feelings you have when you read books or, or watch movies is like, well, like how do they ever think of that? How do you ever think of that? And you might have that for moments in films, but this movie is like that from from the second it begins when you're looking at the the fake needlepoint of the coat of arms and the music comes on and the whole bit with the fake war. The war starts at midnight until the very end. I mean, it, it is there. There is not one moment of this that should be cut. And even even the the fake attack in the beginning, when you find out what it is, yeah. at first it's harmless and then it becomes lethal and then it becomes harmless again. And that's that's kind of the, the, the motion of the entire movie is that what what is harmless is lethal, except eventually. But maybe that's OK. Well, let's let's talk about that, because, you know, the, the combination of what's harmless and what's lethal, the way I knew that I was in good hands. We've said that in a lot of episodes, right, Mike? Like we watch a movie like, here's how I know I'm in good hands. So my moment is I'm watching it. It's beautifully shot. You know, it, it, everything, everything about it's great. It's totally enjoyable. But of course, the moment that made my jaw drop open was the duel. And I know you know me well enough to know why I thought the duel. Why do you think I said the duel moment was so unbelievable? The duel somehow is just a confluence of everything. There's uh, there's structure uh, and chaos uh, and conflict, and you're right on the precipice of death, but somehow you're also cheerful, and this movie lets you know that it could have gone a million different ways. And what happens when you're on the precipice? You don't see the duel. That's when I knew that I was in the hands of people that really knew what they were doing, because 
Plus, we're coming off the red shoes, right? So in the red shoes, you get an hour of setup and you think to yourself, we talked about this in that episode. We're like, this better be good. This better be good. And then you get the middle of the film. You actually see the red shoes. Your mouth drops open. You're like, man, they built this thing up and they they really did it right. So this one, you get all the buildup again. They had the lottery among the Germans over who's going to duel him. Then they get there. Then they have a, you know the, the the Swedish general to be the to be the um the judge. Then they pick the seconds. Then they have the rule book and they go through and then they get there. You have to put your feet in the resin and they get in the spots and you're all waiting and waiting. And then all of a sudden the camera just goes up over the roof and you don't see the duel and you just see the snow falling. And I was thinking like, what? Like, how could that is so shocking? And the more I thought about it, I mean, I was grinning when it happened. I thought that's a great trick on the audience, right? Because what's great about it is that traditionally the duel would be the most exciting thing in that part of the film. But Powell and Pressburger think, no, you know, what's exciting is, is how these guys' lives come together because of this and afterwards. So the convalescence is exciting. Him saying like, very much, not very much. You, you start to realize, oh, that's what this movie's about. It's the, about the friendship between these two guys. And they think that's really exciting. So you, and there's, the movie's full of things you don't see that, are, there's, that in another movie you would see. And I think it's funny that it's a confluence of their aesthetic values while it's also a joke on the Germans. Because of course, what do the Germans care about more than the duel? The rules. They care about the rules, about the forms of the duel, about the rule book, and they can get away with teasing you as audience into following the forms as an outsider without giving you the payoff, so to speak. But following the ambulance is better because what that's what you don't get if you're inside and you see everything happen, right? Because it, it could have been anything. And then you find out that it's him in comic mime, that they he's relegated to a mime for five or 10 minutes. And then when that gag wears off, they end it. Okay, welcome back. So in part two, of course, we like to talk about key moments or moments that are indicative of the themes of the film as a whole. Yeah, and it's almost impossible to pick one because you can you can stop the movie at any point and get a great moment. But my moment is, and I, was, I had a lot of candidates for this, but in the interest of time, I'm going to give you one. This is the part where... Um, where Anton Walbrook comes back after he's been a prisoner of war in England for a year. The armistice has been declared. He's been stuck there. You know, um, Candy goes to see him and he gets blown off and he gets his feelings hurt. He finds it at the train station. He comes back to the dinner. He meets all of the, of the big shots going around. Everyone gets their little introduction around the table. And there's a little conversation there. And I just want to, I just typed out a little bit of it from the, from the captions on the film. I just want to read it because this is my moment. They all start to ask him about what it was like to be a POW. And there's a couple of pleasantries, like, how was the food? He's like, it was English cooking, right? And then um, somebody says, what's the sense of guarding officer prisoners nearly a year after the fighting's over? And he says, I imagine it's for our protection. Protect against what? People. What people? Your people. The Brit says, what do you mean? And he says, they can't be adjusted from war to peace as easily as you can, gentlemen. And they say, oh, that's not true. That's not true. And someone says, you mean to say that our people would attack you in that uniform? And he says, I tried to kill Englishmen in this uniform. And someone says, my dear fellow, that's a gloomy point of view. And Candy says, you've got the wrong end of the stick, old man. The war's over. There's nothing to be a menace about. You're a decent fellow and so are me. So are we. And he says, I am not a decent fellow. I'm a beggar like all the professional soldiers in our army. 
So that moment struck me as really powerful because at first with the duel and when they're playing bridge afterwards and getting to know each other, the film is initially about um, friendship. I mean, the whole movie is about friendship, right? But it's initially about friendship crossing military lines that, you know, what it's like, that's a traditional thing. Like, you know, this guy's going to be friends with this guy and our friendship will overcome the bigger problems with, with our nations. But as the stakes get raised and we get to the Great War, then that friendships get tested, right? The guys at the table are all jolly ho. They think you can flip a switch on human emotions and that's it. Like that's what, like the war's over, you know, and that reminds you of the beginning, right? The war starts at midnight as if wars follow a timetable. Wars don't and human emotions don't. And of course, as the movie goes on, their friendship is tested because the stakes of life and death get higher. And to the point where, remember, Theo says to him, um, you know, if you let yourself be defeated by them just because you're too fair to hit back, then the only methods that will be left are Nazi methods. So so Candy is an optimist, right? Remember when the, when the armistice is declared and he says, we won, you know, um, right makes might and we won and the explosion stop and you hear the bird twittering. He's a like, good, clean fighting. We did it. And he, it's about a guy that tries to maintain that as the, for the, his whole life. But it's great that, you know, Anton Wahlberg has to keep reminding him that, no, it's not that simple, but but they still remain friends and they still respect each other. And they're each right. They each have a really great point of view. So quick question. Does the phrase right makes might remind you of anything? Uh, might makes right. It reminds me of might makes right, which is the the famous thing from the from the sword in the stone. I mean, it was a, it was a it's a famous yeah. contemporaneous thing, but um, it. it it strikes me that you come to love the character of Roger Livesley uh, as Clive Wynn Candy because he's exactly like uh, he's a, uh, he's exactly like King Arthur. He's who you want them to be, right? So the Sword in the Stone is a great transformation of like a boy story or co- cartoon character into a um, psychologically complex yeah. individual, and not just an individual. You think to yourself, how could I root for him? Like, how could he be my liege? And by the end of the Sword in the Stone, you're ready to you know, declare allegiance. And that's what I feel that, that this movie is, is very much about. And yeah. um, the, the, it's about a certain kind of moral strength, which seen from the outside looks like he's a, he looks like he's a reactionary cartoon of like Winston Churchill until you go into his mind and you, and into his heart and you find out what's there and you find that it's something worth uh, pledging allegiance to. Yeah, the simple thing is like he says, do you know why I grew this mustache? And then you find out why he grew the mustache. And then, of course, it goes a lot deeper than the mustache. So what was your moment? So my moment is when Otto is driving in the car with Johnny uh, and he starts to ask her about herself and her boyfriend and what her life is like and what she did before the war. She was a model before she was a driver, you know, and, and why a driver and you can see how deeply amused he is uh, by talking to her. And it struck me, it kind of takes you in its relentlessness until that moment to understand, I think that this movie is very much about the transformation of love. It's about love, not as necessarily transcendent, but transferable between people and situations. And it, and it takes, it takes different forms, right? At first, Clive Wynn Candy is in love with the girl, right? He wants to get the girl, which translates into love for Otto because he feels so joyful about the world, right? And he says, well, I didn't realize that he was in love with her. In fact, like it's there's a failure of transformation of love because he thinks that since he loves her, he can love the sister. You remember that? He takes her out on a date. But it doesn't doesn't work. And somehow, somehow love is enduring in the sense that it will take different forms, but it won't die and then you see you see Otto experience that right he's he's lost his kids um and his and his wife is yes. dead 
and he finds himself literally driving in the car with, of course, his wife, which is which is another <laughs> audacious thing that um, Palin right. Pressburger can't can't help. The third iteration, do. Of, the third iteration of that woman. The third iterate, the, the reoccurring woman. Yes, and and she's back again, and you can see on his face how he feels about her, and it's about love as the only meaning of life, and it's it's somehow the same love, but it takes different forms. But they, but in order to show how those moments kind of rhyme with each other, they use the same actress, of course, yeah. right? And it's it's like romantic love turns into friendship, which turns back into romantic love, which becomes friendship, which becomes a strong marriage during which they never see each other, which becomes friendship again, right? Which becomes an old man's love kind of not for a woman, but kind of for, for the idea of a woman or, or a person, it becomes a, a sort of tenderness and it's almost too tender to contemplate or really talk about in an articulate way, because it's so, it's like a big, massive, smooth thing that you don't know. I, I don't necessarily know where to grip it from, but I know what I'm feeling when I'm watching the movie. Yeah. And of course there's also um, Clive's love of his country and, and, and love of England and love of love of the idea that there's a certain way to do things. It strikes me too that there's another famous novel about exactly this situation, which is I don't know if you've read The Remains of the Day. So the the Remains of the Day is about a famous dinner party wherein an English diplomat invo- invites a lot of other English diplomats together, and their Otto, and he describes how tough it is for the Germans, and so th- they make a resolution that they're going to pass in front of the House of Lords that maybe we should ease up a bit. And it's about this butler who realizes that he's wasted his life because he's loved the Clive Wynn candy of the world, who turned out to be a naive fool who let the Nazis out of the box. And so I think that they treat a very complex subject also with great tenderness, right? Because I guess the punchline of the remains of the day is I've wasted my life and also didn't get romantic love. And Clive Wynn candy is, is a hero for holding out for love and for for England. But again, it saying those things, but not knowing what they mean would make you a cartoon character yeah. or worse. It would make you something on, on, on a propaganda poster, but actually believing in tenderness and humanity is something else. The funny thing about the British in this movie is they don't have a vocabulary in which to express themselves. What you'd have to do is minutely watch the important moments of a person's life in order to interpret and understand. Right. Because that, that's the funny thing about British people. And that's how British people are made to be cartoons in front of other people, right? They say stiff upper lip, what? Yeah. Or they say uh, jelly good, what? <laughs> right? And that's that's the cartoon of an Englishman. But what they mean is I'm having a transcendent human experience. But there's no there's no British vocabulary for that. So welcome back. In part three, we talk about the title or the ending. Mike, what's your take on the ending? So we're treated, of course, to a, essentially a frame tale. And and you think you might think it's a quick flashback, but it's it's a frame tale the same way that the Canterbury Tales is a frame tale, right? It's it's a story which is a setup so that I can tell you this story. And what I'm struck by, as I mentioned in part one, is the beauty of the mechanics of the device, where you can see that the soldiers are just fooling around, right? They're they're going to capture the the um, the head of the home guard yes. and show them what's what. And it, it's it's kind of like the army navy game here, except like there was an actual yep. war on, and so. It goes from harmless and then to menacing and then back to harmless and then to menacing again, because you find out that he's been fired, that he's been stripped of authority, that he's been embarrassed, that um, people think about his way of life, what you may have thought about him at the beginning of the movie, that he's that he's a laughable figure. And in fact, of course, Powell and Pressburger go out of their way to start the movie with him viewed with as, him as, a vast, as a, in, in the Turkish bath, screaming authority, authority. 
the film is asking a question, is this harmless uh, or is it menacing? Is it harmless or is it menacing? And it it comes out kind of like tail side up that it's menacing. It's one of the worst things that could possibly happen. It means essentially the way of his end of the end of his way of life. But and he what does, happens is he's okay with it. Yeah, he does. He gives that salute at the end and you're proud of him and you're with him. I mean, it's it's almost like in the, you know, the famous song from Citizen Kane, you know, who is this man? What is his name? You know, who is this man? In the beginning, he's a figure of fun. He's nobody. He he's he he is Colonel Blimp, right? That which is so funny about the title that no that you know, the first time you see it, you're like, wait a minute, there's no Colonel Blimp, but this is like the secret life of, you know, it's not the life or death of Colonel Blimp. It's like the secret life of Colonel Blimp, the life behind the cartoon character, behind this figure of fun. So by the time the film comes around, you read you read that frame tale completely different because you, you have knowledge. You know but what nobody else can know because Paul and Pressburger, you know, they take you into that bath, that pool. And when he comes out, that beautiful moment where he comes out. As, as his younger self, and we realize the device that we follow him around, you know, he hasn't changed to the outer world, but we've changed because we know his story. And I think that's so fascinating because in a movie this long that goes through a guy's life and his travails, and he certainly has a share of them. But I think what's interesting about this film is that, you know, a good man is hard to find. It, it's fascinating to me that this movie is about a good man. Jake LaMotta is a fascinating character for drama. Because he's a bundle of insecurities, he's violent, he hates himself, um, he's involved in a sport which is full of violence. It's got everything going for it to make it cinematic. This is about a guy who um, who says at the end, when he looks at his bombed out house from the Blitz, he says, you know, here is the lake and I still haven't changed. And he makes that like silent thing to his, his wife, here is the lake. And I still haven't changed. And that's an accomplishment. Like I kept up my optimism. I kept it going. And even at the end, when he realizes he's been tricked, he wants to invite the kid to dinner and they walk by and he salutes him. And he's like, yeah, you know what? You got it. Like, that's okay. That's fair play. I know the war's supposed to start at midnight, but you know what? You got me and I'm laughing about it and that's fine. And I think to be a good person for that long is an achievement that Pal and Pressburger think is worth watching. They don't allow you to understand his senescence or irrelevance to the military guard as a whole to be anything less than his mortality, like 100% equal sign. Your retirement is death. And I think there's a beautiful moral courage that you get maybe from other characters dying on screen, or you can think of all the famous on-screen deaths that either go, that are, that are either cheesy or, and there are some that are poignant that work. But the way that they draw an equal sign between his irrelevance and his immortality and then get him to accept his immortality, his, his irrelevance with a salute. And in fact, with more than a salute, right, it's it's the love transformed into tenderness for the soldier again, because that's Johnny's boyfriend. Right. And they 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 have a kind of bemused acceptance of him because they accept her as one of the crew. Right. You And you don't find out about that relationship. She's Mata Hari. Until, yeah, uh, right. you know, until you find out who she is. And he says that girl under the desk is a prisoner, too, which, again, is that menacing or is that a joke? Well, turns out it's a joke, kind of. Kind of. Um, and I, I think that his his acceptance, again, you don't always expect to be fired from being um, a brigadier general in the British military because very few of us will be. Uh, but we will all die. And I, there, I think a lot of movies do that sense of mortality very blatantly. And then they have this character actually face death. But the like the moral relentlessness of this movie is to make you understand that this is death and nothing less than death. And he not only accepts it and walks into it, 
uh, he salutes it and welcomes it. And but there's nothing, there's nothing necessarily negative about it. I don't, I don't, no, ne- I don't. And he's and he's not dead yet. And he's not dead. And I feel like Monty Python. I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead yet. But um, but he's not dead yet because he still he still is inspiring, and he's still he's not he's not a figure of fun. Like like you know what it made me think of just now, and I also thought this when I watched the film is that. Powell and Pressburger could have made the mistake of turning him into Willie Loman. So Willie Loman, a death of a salesman, is washed out, but he doesn't know that about himself. And he keeps thinking he's going to be on top. And so when the world changes and he can't keep up with it, he kills himself to, to presumably give the money to his son, which, of course, is, is, is all going to go into the, the void anyway. It's not going to change his son's life. But, but he labors under this this delusion about his son i think what's cool about this movie is that blimp learns at the end what's going like remember he goes to give the speech about dunkirk and the lawyer says you can't give the speech and he says i was a soldier when 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 you were a decision of over a boy's or a girl's name that's my whole life and so i think he doesn't become a figure of of sentimentality by Powell and Pressburger. He still has his dignity. He doesn't become Willie Loman. So when he salutes at the end, a lot, goes, you're right, a lot goes into that salute. And I think it's inspiring. And that's why at the end, you see Johnny and you see Otto, and then you see him in this triad of, of people who we've been watching for three hours over the course of 40 years. And you realize like, like you know, my thing was, I was like, that's like a life lived. Like, like you, you this is, this movie has captured a life lived. There's something about transcendent or redemptive love in this movie that jumps off the screen um, and it will make you feel good yeah. about yourself and want to it want it will make you want to be more morally courageous in your life. And yeah. and I like it's very I think it's very eye-rolling to say that something is inspiring, but that it right, it's it's like a divine breath. Hundred percent. That's, that's that's what comes in. Like sometimes you leave, we've watched movies where we've still felt depression hangover, yeah, like three <laughs> days afterwards. But I think that this is this is the opposite, and it's so rare to find somebody who can speak about life with poignancy, but without ever veering into an eye roll. This could have ended in a million different spots or it could have just kept going. So I guess we'll say goodnight for now. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to give us a follow, you can follow us on Twitter at 15MINFILM or on Letterboxd at 15MINFILM. We're really doing any and all uh, viewer and listener requests that we get. Uh, We try to stay on top of them. So we want to hear what you want us to watch. Uh, Let us know what you think about the show. And thanks so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.